Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two segments today. First and seconds, Noah Cohen will explain why it's not anti-Semitic to talk about an Israel lobby. And at the bottom of the hour, the political scientist Thea Riofrancos explores the various angles of the Green New Deal. First, the Israel lobby. The other day, Ilan Omar, one of several exciting new members of the House of Representatives, got in trouble for daring to say on Twitter that APAC, the America-Israel Public Affairs Committee, is part of an Israel lobby that raises and spends lots of money to cultivate U.S. support of Israel. For this, she was roundly condemned as an anti-Semite across the mainstream political spectrum. What precisely was Omar's offense? Apparently you're not supposed to say there's an Israel lobby and that APAC is one of its most prominent actors. But there is an Israel lobby, and APAC is one of its most prominent actors. If you visit APAC's website, one of the first things you see on the upper left corner of the screen is its logo with the tagline, America's Pro-Israel Lobby. I guess it's okay if they say it, but not if a Muslim woman born in Somalia does. Now, there's no denying there are real anti-Semites in this world, and that some even use criticism of Israel as a cover for their bigotry. But that's not the issue here. Here's Noah Coleman, a staff writer for Jewish Currents, founded in 1946, which identifies as a magazine of the Jewish left, to help us think about these matters. Noah Coleman. Ilan Omar got in a lot of trouble for uh, what were perceived as anti-Semitic tweets. Uh, do you think these are, that's a fair characterization of what she said? What she said was not anti-Semitic. There is a kind of needless conflation going on of what she said with anti-Semitism. There's, it's a purposeful conflation, though, on the part of Republicans and the Democratic leadership and many of those who are just allied with the Israeli government. And this includes the Israel lobby. And frank conversations about the Israel lobby have like often veered into anti-Semitic territory. But what Ilhan Omar said, saying that the motivations of uh, Republican politicians to pursue action against her are motivated by money, which is what the Israel lobby is very good at giving politicians. Were you surprised at all by the reaction of the uh, Democratic leadership, which was quite harsh and like, came down like a ton of bricks? Not particularly. I mean, last year I attended and reported on the APAC policy conference, and Chuck Schumer was on stage, and he gave the most hardline speech of anybody I saw there, by far. Um, Chuck Schumer is a and, – and, and Steny Hoyer, who's the uh, number two Democrat in the House, they are close allies of the Israel lobby and of the Israeli government – and they are doing what they believe. There's no political play. They're not cowing to Republicans. They agree with Republicans on this, um, which is why you have the House Democratic leadership going after Ilhan Omar so aggressively. Well, this is a, it seems like an area of extreme consensus uh, among the American leadership elite, isn't it? I mean, there's almost no one who dissents from this, uh, this consensus. Absolutely. The consensus is beginning to crack on the Democratic Party because Democratic voters are no longer the backbone of the Israel lobby. Without Democratic voters, the Israel lobby for many decades would not exist. APAC has always called itself bipartisan and aggressively positions itself as bipartisan for that reason. But that is changing. The, cal the political calculus is changing. And so which is why you have people like Ilhan Omar or Rashida Tlaib. Uh, in Congress in the first place. People who openly support BDS, had you asked people in 2018 if that would be a bit of an impossibility at the, uh, for the midterm cycle, I don't think anybody would have said so. But it happened, and it's the new reality, and the schism that's unfolding in the Democratic Party is, 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 is reflective of the end of that consensus, within the Democratic Party at least. And of course, younger Jews just don't seem to have the, uh, the attachment, the fervent attachment uh, to Israel that uh, their older relatives have, do they? I think in a lot of Jewish communal spaces, you see 
more people who are actively engaged with their Jewish identity and with the Jewish religion and with the Jewish community, uh, I think that you see more people who are willing to question the relationship, the nature of the American Jewish community's relationship to Israel. I believe that the thing that is sort of important to qualify this, though, is that it's not because Jewish organizations and young American like to make this about the tension, the generational tensions of American Jews is, I think, misses the point a little bit. A lot of the reason that many American Jews are not interested in Israel is because they're not interested in the Jewish community because they've assimilated increasingly. And I think the what's happening, I think the dynamic is actually the more important dynamic is sort of the reverse, which is that the Jewish establishment, because they are engaging with the, the number of Jews who are super engaged with the Jewish community and who are super plugged in, an increasing number of them are quite politically conservative. And the donors who back these organizations are also quite politically conservative. And so I think that the American Jewish community, as we've understood it, is what's changing. And so the onus and the exciting kind of activism and energy around this issue in Jewish spaces is coming from people who were previously considered on the margin of that community and who are trying to think of ways to expand it and make it something that actually reflects what many people who do have Jewish heritage and do feel part of a Jewish community and want to be part of a Jewish community, to refashion the Jewish community in something that can be a home to them. What's the role of the Netanyahu government? And then most of his opposition is coming from people even more appallingly right wing than he is. So, I mean, is this the, the, the continuing rightward drift of Israeli politics? What's, what, what effect is that having an American opinion uh, about Israel? What you've already seen is that it's making the democratic sentiment, pro-Israel sentiment is decreasing. There's a Pew survey from last year. Many, many, like a plurality of Democrats still, you know, support Israel, whatever that means. But even by that weird question standard, the sentiment that sentiment has decreased by a number of points um, from previous years. And among Republicans, it's increased. I think you could chalk a lot of that up to the fact that the Netanyahu government has been in power for about 10 years now. And the right wing pro settler politics um, of the Israeli uh, of the current Israeli government push away lots and lots of Jews who are lots and lots of Americans, sorry, not Jews, but they push away lots and lots of American Democrats and other lefty-leaning figures who would have been at least kind of comfortable with supporting the Israeli government before. That's changing. And where it's and it's changing also in America because of the explicit alliances being developed between the right-wing political parties that dominate Israel and the Republican Party. It seems like a lifetime ago at this point, but when Bibi Netanyahu gave an address to Congress in vain against the Iran deal and against Obama, he did so. It was he was a you know a foreign head of state showing up to Congress without the express you know invitation of the president to deliver an address about how the president sucks. It's it's the Israel has been made a partisan issue by the Republicans, which is you know it's been a long time coming, frankly. And the Netanyahu government relishes it because they see the Republicans as their natural base of support in America. And that speech, what didn't uh, no less an authority than Thomas Friedman claim that was bought and paid for by the Israeli lobby? Absolutely. This is this is also one of the great hypocrisies of the Ilhan, of, of this whole you know quote unquote scandal around Ilhan Omar is that what she said is something that everyone believes. Donald Trump got up in front of the Republican Jewish Coalition and talked about how he didn't take their money. Like he, you have, this is a cynical attempt by the Republicans to smear the left as anti as as, as having an anti semitism problem. And while anti-Semitism exists on the left because anti-Semitism is a is, is not it's it's not like a 
it's not dictated by individual animus or attitudes. It's, it's a broader social force that exists in all parts of society, although is obviously much more present and violent as a, or much more present and um, dangerous as an organized threat on the right. I think that you you see this hypocrisy with Omar because what they what the right is so interested in doing is creating this is the semblance of doubt and getting the Democrats to turn on their own. It's it's a, it's meant to divide Democrats. That's the entire point of this, and they succeeded. It was the same overture that they um, were making with S one, the anti BDS bill that was before Congress earlier. The entire point of this is to reveal a schism in the Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party, because their schism actually does exist, this divide does now actually exist for the first time in many years, is totally taking the bait and is totally willing to throw people like Ilhan Omar under the bus because the actual policy agenda of the Democratic leadership is to stay the course and to not discuss Palestinian freedom, not discuss the occupation, not discuss the American support for Israel. Well, let's talk to them about APEC. This organization is what, like 50 years old, right? Um... How is it organized? What do they do? Give, give us the bio of, uh, or the profile of, of, of APEC. So APEC was started many, many decades ago, and, and it, it was sort of born out of a lot of tensions in the late Carter, early Reagan years between the Israeli government and the American government. Um, Jimmy Carter basically forced Israel to peace talks, forced um, right-wing prime minister in Israel um, to peace talks with the Palestinians. And Reagan was really pissed at the Israeli government quite frequently, even though the Israeli government thought he would be more friendly because of their activities in, when they invaded southern Lebanon. Um, the Marine barracks bombing in Lebanon in 82 was actually a really big point of friction for Reagan. And he halted arms sales because he didn't want American arms being used in Israel's war in Lebanon. But it doesn't really become a potent political force until the 1990s in, in a really significant way. And what APAC was able to do was to focus on not making Israel, the entire objective was we are not going to make Israel a partisan issue. We are going to make it a consensus issue. And they succeeded because they gave they were able to arrange for lots and lots and lots of money for motivated donors to enter the political system at all levels. Whether you were a down ballot Republican uh, running for you know a state judgeship in Ohio, I'm making up an example there, but you get the idea. APAC would be there. They would be there before you knew they were there because they were watching you. And this isn't because, again, this is not a conspiracy of Jewish control. This is just incredibly effective political advocacy work. Um, it's money deployed very effectively. Now, they claim they don't give money to candidates. Is that uh, splitting hairs? This is entirely a technical distinction. APAC itself is a 501c3. I, I, I forget. The, I'm, well, I'm sure I got the distinction wrong. But the point is that they are a nonprofit and they're not a PAC and they're not... Right, that's three. A four can give money. Yeah. Right, so they're a 501c3. What APAC does is that people affiliated with APAC, supporters, donors, etc., people in APAC's network um, will bundle donations on behalf of candidates. It's actually a, an organizing model. There's a wonderful story by Connie Brock in The New Yorker in 2014 that lays out the details of how this works. APAC gives money. It's just not APAC, the organization that's giving money. It's APAC's network of individuals who will then bundle money on behalf of these on behalf of these candidates. And so there are ways it's difficult to track the full extent of APAC's giving, although it can be done. And, and I believe Open Secrets or other organizations have done so. You can tell how much money they're able to give through these bundlers. And, and that's how APAC is able to give money. It's the, the people who say that APAC itself doesn't give money, it's, that's not even a defense that APAC itself would use because they know that it's just a, it's, it's a word, it's a semantic distinction, effectively. I'm speaking with Noah Coleman, a staff writer at Jewish Currents. 
then what about ideologically too? They were able to mobilize uh, public opinion as well as uh, mobilize money, right? I think that they're less able to mobilize public opinion as much as they were in the past. I think that they what is what they were able to do was, you know, they make the money work for them and the money continues to be a huge and enormous part of this. And people who say otherwise are delusional. The, the, what they've done, though, and which the way that they mobilize public opinion is is, is not really it's not, it's not so much Apex purview. Apex role in that is that they create an environment in which the public opinion on Israel could be something so easily manipulated. There's a whole other constellation of organizations and activist groups and individuals who are spend money both covertly and publicly to influence public opinion in this regard. The Emergency Committee for Israel got involved in a number of Senate races previously. And then you have, and that's that's a that's like a very right wing organization. I believe Bill Crystal was affiliated with it, though I could be wrong about that. But they, they have a number of right wing individuals and their explicit goal is to give money and pursue advocacy. Or you have Mort Klein and the Zionist Organization of America, which is an old organization without really any members, but is a vehicle through which money gets spent and they put out mailers and lobby in Jewish spaces and so on. And then the biggest donor of them all who's interested in shaping public opinion about this is Sheldon Adelson. Sheldon Adelson gave $55 million to spend on the 2018 midterm cycle. The primary motivation for all that spending to elect Republicans, it's about Israel. And he will do, he does that. He's, he has his own newspaper. I mean, in Israel, he intervenes and he bought a newspaper, Israel Hayom, to help out the Netanyahu government with public opinion. I think that you have a lot more sort of overt interventions there. And then, of course, you have the kind of softer sorts of intervention, uh, interventions from these groups and figures in places like academia and in think tanks, where you have uh, similar to the way the, the UAE or Saudi Arabia have bought influence in, in the Beltway and in academia, which is to just give money to people who then, you know, because you gave them a lot of money, tend not to say critical things at you. U.S. support for Israel has taken on... You've alluded to this, uh, taken on an increasingly right-wing cast. Uh, the Christian right is an important part of it now, too, right? This is the, one of the key dist- the ch- transformations of the last decade or so, which is that the Christian Zionist base is actually the political group that animates Republican Party voter interest in this. It's not Jews. It's not about winning Jews. The vast majority of Jews in America vote for Democrats. That's, that's, that's not in dispute. But the Christian Zionist component, what that has done it has made the incentives for Republican politicians to actually not even necessarily align with the Israeli government in some places, because the ideological motivations of Christian Zionist voters, you could argue that it's uh, it's about imperialism and maintaining, you know, a bastion of perceived European and nationalism in the Middle East. Or you can make an argument that it's really because these people genuinely believe that in order for the Messiah to come, you have to gather the Jews in their historical homeland, which is what many of them do. But those are the people who have who are the, the Republican voting bloc that actually matters and that who they have to respond to when it comes time for them to answer for to their voters about, you know, how have you been doing on Israel? The, the distinction I will make, though, is that a lot of people have been pointing this out and saying, so APEC doesn't matter. It's really about the Zionists. But I really want to push back on that point because it's one that a number of people have made, which is that. It's true that Republicans have to answer to their voters on this, uh, and, they're, and they're really evangelical voters on this point. But the Republican political class and the incentives of the Republican political elite are totally aligned around the money. And there is absolutely a, a there are absolutely series of decisions that they would not otherwise make when it comes to the embassy movement, when it comes to um, brokering peace with the Palestinians. It is inconceivable 
that the status quo with Israel-Palestine and the occupation um, and U.S. Un, like the the staggering U.S. military aid to Israel, this that was purchased by the Israel lobby, and there can be no mistake about that. And I imagine that uh, you know uh, Northrop Grumman and McDonnell Douglas and these people are also uh, important uh, supporters of the is- Israel. This is why, you know, the Israel lobby is a big tent group. We talk about big tent politics in the Democratic Party quite frequently. Israel lobby is quite big tent. You have Northrop Grumman, you have the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, you have the United Arab Emirates. All of their strategic interests, they align. And so the Israel lobby is also not just Jews, which is part of, which goes back to this original point about Ilhan Omar. The Israel lobby is not a Jewish lobby. And to conflate those two things is also anti-Semitic, is, is far more anti-Semitic than anything Ilhan Omar has said, which is one of the quite sad ironies of this whole week. Yeah, this is what I wanted to, to talk about in conclusion. Um, when you start talking about Jews and money and you know plotting, you start sounding like you're getting into uh, Protocols of Elders of Zion territory. So how can we think and talk about this in ways that are accurate uh, and, uh, and and not bigoted? I think the first and most important thing is to just not make statements about the way about Jews and the way Jews operate and the way Jews think. Um, I think like talking about Jews as individuals in that way and, you know, identifying individual like Jewish donors and talking about Jewish money. That's those are pretty clearly like tropes and canards that are like, like that are unacceptable in like political discourse, like, you know, and, and, and the left has to accept that. And I believe many, many do. I don't think that it's it's quite the problem that it is made out to be by the right. Um, I think also simultaneously that, you know, there are a number of groups in the Jewish establishment, which is a fair term to use. There are a number of groups in the Jewish establishment that are, you know, totally a part of the Israel lobby. But I think it's also important that one of the ways you avoid, you know, really veering into anti-Semitic territory is to keep in mind that the Israel lobby is not just Jews. That the the state of Israel and its polit- and its strategic allies and its strategic interest does not reflect all Jews, and that to criticize these entities and to talk about these entities is to recognize that this is not just about the Jews, and that there is something much more significant and sort of broad based happening. Um, I, I also think that one of the other things that's really important is to um, to something earlier I said is to also not suggest that political decisions about Israel are Jews motivated by their own Jewish interest. I think that it's kind of reductive and it's something that I hear, you know, I don't want to say it's like, it's something that I hear all the time and that Jews hear all the time, but I absolutely think that it's a, it's, it's something that folks deal with and that, that you shouldn't talk about people's interest in the, in, in, or people's, um, people's interest in the conversation or what their what their agenda may be and assume that it is a Jewish agenda. I think that it's a very dangerous road to go down and it's very important for for people to keep their heads level with this. And then one of the things that formulations like, you know, people say Congress is Israeli occupied territory and that's a common trope. Um, that oh. dismisses that U.S. Uh, support of Israel um, is totally aligned with U.S. military political imperial strategic interests, right? I mean, this is it's not that they're leading us around by our nose. No, this is it's 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 kind of an interesting balance because you could argue on the one hand that, you know, like, like, who cares about the Israel lobby? We'd support them anyway, because we have a reason to be there. And I think that there is it's it's important to know that, like, we support Israel because we really do believe this, like we're ideologically bought in. But the reason that that overcomes any internal political resistance is because of the money and because this exists. And so it's important to not say that Israel is you know, leading the U.S. around with this and that they're controlling us and everything. It's, it's in that way. It's because they are one of a number of you know, imperial interests that are 
and have for a long time been um, enmeshed in the U.S. political system. And I think that there is a and that and that's an important nuance, I think. But it's nonetheless, it's really impressive how um, carefully and brutally um, these ideological perimeters are policed. I mean, the, the, the instant and unanimous reaction punishing Omar for the, those tweets was really uh, quite impressive. I, there's, I, look, these are these these people. There's a lot of money that goes around for a reason, and I think what we've seen today. I think Matt Iglesias uh, had actually had a pretty good line about this, saying, you know, the, the events of yesterday were really, really compelling case that the, the that the Israel lobby has an outsized int- uh, control and interest in the public discourse. I forget his exact words, but he said something to that effect on Twitter, and I thought that kind of caught caught it uh, pretty smartly. Uh, I believe that there's also sort of one other component of this, and that's that if you consider the state of American conservatism and the fact that it is just so steeped in grievance politics, white grievance politics, grievance politics of the rich, they're looking for opportunities to, in their mind, call out the left because the left is, of course, they're the real racists and the real anti-Semites. And seeing seeing a black Muslim woman in Congress talk about you know, the, the money that's used by the Israel lobby to guide and influence U.S. policymaking, to them, it's, it's, it's very obvious that that's the connection that they draw. Yeah, I mean, to them, that's a nightmare come to life, right? Exactly. It's, there's nothing that scares it, it ter- I mean, I don't want to say it, it terrifies them because at the same time, they also view her as somebody that can be flicked away pretty easily. And I think that the events of the last, 20, like the last 48 hours kind of illustrate why they feel that way. But at the same time, it's very clear that this is they, they, they are looking for another avenue on which to expand their grievance politics and to and to convince the world that they are really the ones who are under siege. And this is a drum that they're just going to keep beating until they're told to, until they're effectively told to shut up. But nonetheless, it was really uh, also a bit surprising to see Matt Iglesias tweeting that. I mean, he's not exactly an against the, against the grain type. Iglesias, to his credit, has been has talked about the role of the Israel lobby for a long time. And he was part of that group at Think Progress, the, the bloggers, the Center for American Progress, who were actually targeted by a former APAC official, Josh Block, um, in letters to reporters trying to get them to characterize Cap as uh, anti-Semitic. So they, 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 like, I, I give him some credit there. I think that what it does reflect is that the liberal consensus and the liberal policymaking elite um, consensus on Israel is actually really cracking apart. That even the kind of a lot of the spaces that were previously you would not have anticipated this kind of criticism of the Israeli government and criticism of the Israel lobby, um, it's now fair game because the occupation is still ongoing. There is cyclical violence where you, you read about horrible body counts in Gaza and the just the depriv- the total deprivation there and the total poor quality of life, the lack of freedom and the lack of basic security, economic and, and otherwise, that you have for Palestinians in the West Bank. It's just undeniable at this point. And, and, and it's, it's, it, the further you get from Oslo and the clearer it becomes that Israel does actually have the power as the occupier you're going to see more people like Iglesias speaking up. And I think that it's, it's, it will point, it'll, it's going to be one of the key points of tension um, as the Democratic Party crack up over Israel continues. I was Noah Colbin, a staff writer for Jewish Currents. The day after we recorded this interview, Ilan Omar confronted Elliot Abrams, who is nothing less than a liar and a war criminal. For details, see John Schwartz's recent article in The Intercept for being a liar and a war criminal. It was bold and beautiful to watch, but the entire foreign policy establishment unsurprisingly came to the defense of Abrams and denounced Omar as an anti-Semite. The empire takes care of its own. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. 
My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of the first movement of the Third String Quartet by Alfred Schnittke, performed by the Tall Quartet. Next, the Green New Deal. The phrase has been bouncing around for a long time, but the concept took a major step forward when, on February 7th, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Ed Markey, the first a glorious breath of fresh air, the second a four-decade veteran of Congress, introduced a resolution, not a bill, urging the adoption of a broad set of policies addressing both the climate crisis and a host of social problems like inequality, unemployment, and bad housing. It's an extremely broad and ambitious agenda. Nancy Pelosi mocked it as the Green Dream, or whatever they call it. Nobody knows what it is, but they're for it, right? What is this Green New Deal, exactly? Here's Theoria Francos, an assistant professor of political science at Providence College, and one of the editors of a series of articles on the topic in Jacobin Magazine, to tell us. Theoria Francos. Just start by telling us what uh, you've got uh, forthcoming with this package in Jacobin. Um, what are you planning to uh, do with the Green New Deal? Yeah, so what we're planning to do with um, the Green New Deal series at Jacobin is kind of open up debate from the left and on the left and among leftists over what a Green New Deal should look like, pushing to radicalize the conversation, but also pushing to think strategically about how uh, leftists and eco-socialists and uh, uh, keep keep it in the ground folks can kind of um, push um, on this conversation and intervene in it. Um, so that's our kind of overall vision. We have three pieces out, or no, actually maybe four or five pieces out already. We have more coming this week. We have more coming March, uh, April, and into the indefinite future, so long as this is uh, a debate um, in the U.S. Do you know anything about the intellectual history of this Green New Deal? Where did this rather grand and ambitious proposal come from? Well, there are kind of different uh, different threads to the genealogy of it. Um, it has been uh, a term used by kind of neoliberal centrists like Thomas Friedman. Um, there was a briefly lived kind of like Green New Deal position and initiative in the Obama administration. There's also, you know, a much broader kind of realm of, of kind of social movements that have been pushing for these types of proposals. Um, recently, I forget where it was, but some conservative website linked uh, the Green New Deal to the Leap Manifesto in Canada, which is like a pretty radical environmental and indigenous uh, manifesto around uh, uh, around a sort of eco-socialist future. So that's if that's the case, that's cool. I'm not exactly sure if that's how Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez got the idea. Um, but there are different strains to this. Um, but I think what's different now is the political context in which it's occurring and the sort of opening that we have uh, to push for a visionary agenda to address climate change. The name evokes two things. Uh, the green part, of course, um, saving the climate so we uh, don't, don't snuff out life as we know it. 
Uh, but then the New Deal, which harkens back to the 30s. So let's look a bit at each of those pieces. I mean, what um, in this proposal um, uh, is uh, reminiscent of the uh, New Deal of the 30s? I think that what's most reminiscent is is a few things. One is the scale of the problem and therefore like the scale of the response um, socially and politically and economically that we need to implement in order to address the problem. The second is um, the sort of idea of the state being used to address uh, issues of social welfare and in this case kind of eco-social welfare and planetary welfare. And that's something that harkens back to the, the New Deal. Um, and the third kind of relatedly to the first two is just like the sense of, of crisis and the, the need to, to address a crisis before it gets worse. And then the green part, uh, the ambitions are um, rather grand there, the, uh, the elimination of carbon emissions by what, 2030? Yeah. And so, you know, reaching um, uh, 100%, I think, renewable and clean by 2030, and maybe it's zero carbon uh, emissions, zero net carbon emissions by 2050. Um, don't quote me on that, but I think that that's more or less what, what the plan is. So that is that is part of the green part of it. Um, there are other um, aspects to the green part of it, like, for example, um, building out mass transit and sort of like moving away from a fossil fuel-based transit system uh, and a privatized transit system. Um, so there are, there are aspects that go beyond on, like specifically just the energy piece, but um, but yeah, that that's what the green refers to. Richard Hofstetter said it somewhere that uh, the the period from the 30s to the 1960s or early 70s in the U.S. were, were a real exception to uh, American history in that uh, the market and individual conceptions of politics took a real backseat towards a collective uh, and state-centered uh, view of politics and economics. Is there some way uh, that we can recover that um, period of exception? Um, are, are we heading in that way? Is, is are, are politics of the present kind of evolving in a more collective fashion than uh, they had been for the last uh, several decades? Yeah, I mean, I think it's absolutely true that 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 forty-year period of political economy was distinct from the sort of neoliberal period that has come since. Um, but I think what's important is to look at the the social, political, and economic conditions of possibility for that period. So on the one hand, you had massive kind of labor militancy and labor unrest um, that kind of pushed the government uh, to take decisive action. Um, you also had a, a clear crisis um, uh, of the of the Great Depression. Um, and then you had a clear kind of need for na- national mobilization with World War II. And then after the, 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 the war ended, you also had an economic boom and a period of relative affluence, which does make it easier easier to sort of press capitalists in terms of sharing the fruits of that affluence. Um, I think some of similar conditions might be repeating. You do have sort of um, definitely not the same degree of labor militancy as earlier in the 20th century, but you do have some resurgent strike activity. You also have a resurgent just left more generally in the U.S. We have a clear crisis to address, um, which is uh, um, climate change and and environmental catastrophe. What we don't have is the conditions for sort of a higher growth period. Um, So I think that there you might see some more intense class conflict um, uh, and conflict more generally around um, how to redistribute and the, the tools that are necessary to uh, to redistribute and violate some of the norms of private property and, and the free market. Yeah. What is the, the Green New Deal's thinking on growth? Are we trying to kickstart growth again or are we just looking for a different uh, kind of economic model through this? That is a source of much debate among the left and something that perhaps some of our pieces will address and might take different opinions on in, in, in the, the series in Jacobin. Um, what I would say is most in the way that I think about about the growth issue is maybe going to disappoint some because I don't have like a, a 
either a clearly degrowth or a, or a pro green growth kind of position, I would say that there that overall our resource use, energy use, natural resource use, level of consumption of plastic junk is completely unsustainable. Um, so that might resonate with degrowth folks. Um, but I also think that that our levels of, con of, of consumption are really structured by inequalities so that some people are not consuming enough. Some people don't have a home. Some people don't have um, enough calories each day, right? So we can't just like take an across the board degrowth position when some people don't have enough. So that's where redistribution comes in. And then sort of more maybe to the green growth camp, I would say that there are some sectors that we need to grow, right? We need a massive solar and wind energy build out. We need to increase the infrastructure for mass transit and affordable housing. Um, so I would maybe take a somewhat agnostic position while stating clearly that levels of current consumption under capitalism are overall unsustainable for given planetary resources. And as you you mentioned in that answer, the the Green New Deal contains a substantial redistributionist uh, component. Uh, it's not just about uh, you know, what we think of narrowly construed as environmental issues. It's it's got a very broad social agenda. Right, and this is what is so exciting about it. I think um, that. Um, it, it connects uh, environmental issues to social issues, which I think as as leftists and as uh, um, dialectical materialists, we need to increasingly see as one and the same set of issues, that all politics are climate politics, and it's impossible to think about political economy in a rigorous way without taking planetary and environmental considerations into account. Um, and I also think that it's politically very savvy, because part of the blockages and obstacles around environmental and climate action in the U.S. has been that it's seen as like a separate issue from issues that many people for good reason have at the top of their policy priority or top of their policy preferences, which is, you know, access to affordable housing, um, issues of wage stagnation and the unaffordability of capitalist life, right? So, and, and you know, issues around un, um, uh, union rights and healthcare and all of the stuff that, that the, um, the, uh, Ocasio-Cortez plan kind of put or resolution puts in there. So I think that it's politically quite strategic um, and also completely rigorous analytically to connect the issues of, of um, ecology and society and economy um, in a close way. One of the reasons it's really hard to get people uh, to uh, think seriously about climate politics is that it seems like such a long range consideration when what they're trying to do is pay next month's rent. How do we bring this, you know, um, this this uh, the issue of the climate crisis to greater political salience when it's you know competing with such day to day bread and butter issues? I think that in part the climate, the unfolding climate crisis that is already with us is um, uh, is doing that for us. Like uh, what I've read is recent polling that suggests that extreme weather events are actually making the climate crisis quite salient in terms of like the news cycle, but also making quite salient in terms of people's everyday lives. And that unfortunately is only going to increase. There are many parts of the world, including in the U.S., that are already feeling and living the climate crisis. Uh, that might not be true for every single person, or at least not in a direct direct or concrete way, but that will become more and more the case. Um, and using public policy as a tool to address an already unfolding crisis, I think, will become more and more acceptable to more and more voters. One of the early pieces uh, that details a particular sector uh, in this series is the one on housing, which is an interesting model of how to think about all these things. I mean, we're not uh, it's a very ambitious housing program, but it's, it's, it's got a, a social and an environmental component, right? Right. So I think that um, uh, something like uh, the housing sector 
accounts for something like 40 percent of, of energy use. So it's if we're talking about moving to a zero carbon uh, uh, emission energy system, then we have to talk about housing. Um, but it's also obviously uh, one of the main struggles that that sort of broad working class and economically precarious face today is like the astronomical increase in rent and just like the scarcity of housing. So I think it's a it's it's a clear way to address both climate and social need at the same time. Um, and by building massive amounts of affordable housing uh, that are zero emissions um, and also retrofitting and weatherizing existing housing. You also have a, a, a curious piece uh, in the sense, curious in the sense this is not usually what people uh, write about when they're writing about environmental issues. I mean, there's a sense in which people um, who are concerned with environmental issues are a bit preacherly. Um, they're they're uh, counseling belt tightening. Uh, they, they finger wag and make you feel guilty about your consumption habits. Uh, you frame this around uh, an issue of freedom, which is you know, something that one usually associates with the politics of the right. How does, how does this uh, fit into a model of freedom? Yeah, I think that Corey Robin has been really good on this po- point um, um, over the years of reclaiming the language of freedom for the left, because it is uh, ultimately a left-wing idea. Emancipation is something that requires deep restructuring of power relations in order for the majority of people that are currently living under various oppressive regimes to be free. So I think there's no reason the left should shy away from liberation and emancipation, which have a long history as as tropes and and, and goals of, of left-wing and radical politics. But I also think that, you know, sort of hearkening back to a few other things I've said and and that you've asked me, uh, framing in terms of freedom and liberation is something that is going to resonate more with your average person that is struggling with um, class oppression, that is struggling with racism, with patriarchy, with all sorts of oppressions on a day-to-day basis. And to sort of make the point very clearly that the type of society that a a left-wing and kind of radical version of the Green New Deal imagines is a society that is vastly better, more free, more, um, more fun, with more meaningful human relations relationships um, and more sense of autonomy and democratic control over our, the conditions of our collective existence than the society that we currently have. Yeah, I mean, some people talk about you know, the need for real authoritarianism to face the climate crisis with all the social dislocations and physical dislocations that are going to come with it. Uh, you're obviously arguing quite the contrary. Yeah, I think that, you know, on on the one hand, I definitely think that there are certain forms of state repression that are necessary, but they're not state repression for the majority or towards the majority or the masses of people. They're state repression towards the people that have brought us to this climate crisis. Like, I absolutely think that the assets of fossil fuel companies need to be expropriated and their um, CEOs need to be prosecuted for crimes against humanity. So there's not zero, you know, repressive arm of the state here. But I think for the majority we don't have a repressive or authoritarian vision of the need of, of the policies and, and, and sort of policy mechanisms uh, to address the climate crisis. We have a democratic vision because it's not, you know, the sort of democratic people that have chosen to bring us to, to the brink of, of planetary uh, disaster. Um, and I think it's clear it needs to be clear, like who the enemies are um, and who the sort of broadly speaking beneficiaries will be of action of, of climate action. I'm speaking with the political scientist Theoria Francos, who's one of the editors of the Jacobin magazine series and the Green New Deal. But, you know, it's, uh, it's easy to point to corporate culprits uh, for our present uh, um, plight, but um, also we have to change the way we live, don't we? We can't, you know, drive around in our cars the same way. We can't uh, sprawl the same way. Um, we can't uh, consume all the things we do in, in, in the same quantity and quality that we do now. So um, it, it, it's not just about uh, corporate culprits. 
No, it is not. And, and, um, and I don't mean to suggest that. I do think that cor- corporate cul- culprits are useful for two reasons, because there's, you know, a, a handful of corporations that are responsible for the vast majority of, mis- of emissions, right? And there's also been all sorts of corporate lobbying and just misinformation um, that has really skewed the debate over climate. So I think that we can set our sights on those enemies. Um, but I also agree that that the 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 eco-socialist vision that I have and that I think, you know, my co-editors of the series have is one in which there will be a revalorization of values, right? Like we need to um, uh, valorize care. We need to valorize meaningful social relationships. We need to valorize collective goods and collective um, luxuries, as we like to call them, like mass transit and also parks and spending time together, right? Because those are low carbon activities. And we need to definitely devalorize the privatized luxuries of, of car use. Um, and I think that that's something that there's evidence that people, um, even in the belly of the neoliberal beast in the U.S., are open to. Like, you know, there's a lot of interesting work on the World War II period, um, and and not that we, I'm thinking of framing this as a sort of militaristic, like having a foreign enemy type thing, but just to sort of take the example of during World War II, there being enthusiasm around forms of shared sacrifice and, you know, victory gardens and that sort of thing, you know, and I think that there are ways to frame the transition um, that are positive, but also do in involve changes in values and forms of sacrifice, but that people can embrace um, because we're doing it together and we're doing it to confront um, a, a shared crisis. And, now, and speaking of transition, um, this, this proposal has ways of dealing with uh, workers who are going to be displaced by any kind of uh, transition to a post-carbon world, right? Yes, I, you know, the just transition framework, I could have mentioned it earlier as one of the strands in that broader genealogy of where did the Green New Deal come from. So the just transition framework is a is originally a labor proposal, but it's been adopted much more uh, broadly than just organized labor, which is the idea that any transition to a renewable energy system, a zero carbon energy system needs to, uh, you know, center on the people who might be potentially negatively affected by that transition. And, you know, one of those groups of people are coal workers, for example, right? And we can no longer engage in environmentalism that like pits coal workers against the renewable transition, right? We need to think about what are we going to actually do with workers that currently work in extractive industries, and we need to hear their concerns, and we also need to offer viable proposals. And some of this involves learning from other countries like Germany and Spain that are a bit ahead of us in terms of uh, drawing down their coal sectors um, and and retraining and putting those workers in, in other sectors and offering them uh, social security when when needed. Yeah, that's because one of the we- weapons the right uses against any kind of, of post-carbon vision is uh, they're taking your jobs away. And uh, we've got an answer for that. We've got an answer for that in the form of, of a jobs guarantee that is being paired with the Green New Deal, which is not only about workers in extractive sectors, but also more broadly, we have a crisis of people not finding work, not having enough work, not getting by on the work that they have. And there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, and it's not just like building solar panels, but that's, that is an important part of it. It's not just that kind of hard hat green job. It's also care work. And I'm talking about education, um, healthcare, childcare, which is stuff that our society needs, but also sectors that are low carbon and will be a key part of, of a more sustainable economy. Um, so we need more of all of that type of work. We also need to restore wetlands. We need like a you know, civilian conservation corps. We need people to do lots of things. And so a job guarantee is absolutely a way to marry kind of the social justice and, and the, the environmental catastrophe work. Uh, the original New Deal has been criticized for uh, its uh, racial and gender biases. It favored white workers, white male workers, and uh, left women and uh, black people, particularly in the South, behind. Um, this Green New Deal 
is uh, quite the opposite, right? It is quite the opposite. Those sectors that I just mentioned that we need to expand um, for a more sustainable economy, uh, the care sectors, um, are overwhelmingly currently uh, female and and women of color that work in those sectors. Um, so I think that sort of dignifying those sectors and expanding them um, is something that clearly has a racial uh, and gender kind of justice component to it. Um, and, and more generally, I think that this speaks to the way that we need to think about class and work on the left, right? The working class is a multiracial working class. Um, it is a female working class, right? And so um, we need to kind of think broadly and get away from this hard hat kind of um, or, or the single male breadwinner um, uh, type of image of who the working class is. And this was definitely a huge, huge kind of um, problem with the original New Deal, which we address in, in some of our articles and will continue to address. The politics of this, we're... Um... You know, we're facing opposition, not just from the right, but, you know, uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi, uh, the green dream or whatever. I mean, she's kind of uh, and she's refusing to appoint uh, the kind of uh, committee that needs to uh, study this and get uh, real legislation out of it. It's, it's really um, the, the broad bourgeoisie is going to uh, have a hard time with much of this, aren't they? Even though they may talk the talk, they're not really going to walk the walk. I absolutely think that a substantive commitment to the Green New Deal of the of the type of Green New Deal that we've been discussing, not like a watered down version, is a litmus test for any progressive Democrat. Right. And this will I actually hope it will become a sort of point of polarization and dissensus and debate within the Democratic Party, because I think the more we can do to make it clear, like who's on the side of social and planetary well-being and who is dragging their feet or or an obstacle to it um, is something that we need to do with the Green New Deal, just like we were been, we've been doing with Medicare for all, for example. And then what about the public? You know, there's a lot of mockery of it. Can it, can it be sold to a broad public, um, do you think? Or is this just, um, you know, too, too radical for the American uh, imagination? I don't think it's too radical, and I don't think we should be limiting our political dreams at this moment. I think we're in a moment of fracture of hegemony, and we need to sort of seize the terrain. And what I love about the Green New Deal is that despite the fact that, you know, in the past, centrists like Thomas Friedman have used the term, it's a term that's now clearly associated with the left, which is why we're irking centrist Democrats and also the right wing. And it's and we have an advantage when we are the ones framing the debate. So that's one one point I'd like to make in a second is that I think that, you know, according to all the polls, the support for the Green New Deal among the general public is broad and thin. And what I mean by that is that I think 70 or 80 percent of Americans polled, like, say that they support a Green New Deal, but a similar number say that they don't exactly know what it is. But that's OK. I mean, that's that's the process of like a counter hegemonic battle or hegemon or battle for hegemony is that you're trying to kind of shape the content of something that might be initially kind of incohate. And I think that the left is positioned well, not as well as it could be. The left, I wish, were more organized, more unified, stronger in all sorts of ways. But we're in a better position now than we were, you know, just a few years ago. So I think that we need to take advantage of this and push the Green New Deal as a way to link many of our policy goals. And so that's what I love about the current resolution is that, you know, it throws universal health care in there. It throws collective bargaining rights in there. And there's that's not that, as I said, is both, you know, the morally and, and analytically correct way to look at environmental and planet and, and climate change. But um, it's also political strategic to link it to issues that people might be more familiar with um, and already have generally progressive views on in terms of the broader voting public. And just like the early New Deal, the first New Deal was a broad suite of programs, not just one thing. I mean, that's what this is as well, right? It's a broad suite of programs. 
this is a broad policy paradigm that might be, you know, very well implemented, not only in multiple pieces of legislation, but also at multiple scales of our federal system, right? This is something that cities and states, municipalities, you know, both rural and urban can get to work on, you know, even while there's partisan gridlock at the federal level. Um, it's it's a vision that involves legislation, that involves forms of regulation. So there's, there's it, it's, it's very broad, and it's going to be a multi-step and multi-phase process. Um, and it's also important to know Note that just like the original New Deal um, uh, and and any progressive legislation more broadly, it's also going to involve you know the sort of civil society side of people mobilizing and pressure pressuring and sort of also doing some of this work on their own, whether it's through you know green workers cooperatives or whatever. I mean, there's there's non-state uh, pieces to this as well that I think can in in an ideal world would exist in a synergistic dynamic with progressive state action. And then there are critics on the left who say that uh, we can't solve the climate crisis under capitalism. But on the other hand, the climate crisis is so urgent that uh, I'm not sure we can wait for the revolution that overturns capitalism. So how do we reconcile these uh, these competing um, problems? From my perspective, it is incorrect to see uh, climate rigorous and militant climate action on the one hand and sort of overthrowing capitalism on the other hand as something that happens in discrete stages where we have to pick which one we're going to do first. Um, I think this is actually the wrong way to think about a lot of issues, right? So there's this kind of like old debate on the left, like, do we deal with class first or do we deal with race and gender first, right? I mean, the the more that we can do through solidarity to sort of connect issues and work on that at the same time, I think the better positioned we are. And many of the proposals that are flying under the banner of the Green New Deal have components that actually take us away from a neoliberal version of capitalism towards something like social democracy and hopefully, in my view, towards something like eco-socialism more ultimately, at the same time that they directly address uh, the climate climate crisis and existing forms of environmental destruction. So I think that any policy in the Green New Deal should be doing both and, and as much as possible, that's the way we should be thinking and mobilizing around the Green New Deal. And if we do this right, it requires stepping on capital's freedom of investment, uh, overriding decisions of the market, uh, uh, taking money from, down from its uh, role as the, our, our commander, and uh, introducing humane values into uh, political economy. I mean, this really can be a way of injecting a rather different way of uh, thinking and acting. Yes, absolutely. I think both the forms of state intervention and some of the forms of of social movement mobilization that need to happen to make the Green New Deal a reality are absolutely going to violate the norms of private property and the free market. You know, whether it's uh, taking over the the assets of the fossil fuel industry to dismantle that industry because we cannot trust the people that in you know are largely responsible for bringing the climate crisis to also kind of help us solve it, right? So I think that's a clear place for state action and just stronger regulations on the mission front and also all sorts of forms of public investment, right? So not just relying on the private sector or narrow sort of technocratic uh, neoliberal policy mechanisms to address this, I think are are very much a part of the vision of how the Green New Deal will be enacted. That was Thea Riofrancos, an assistant professor of political science at Providence College and one of the editors of a series of articles on the Green New Deal in Jacobin Magazine. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Whip Hand by Arctic Flowers, released a few months ago. Till next week, bye.